Welcome, City Light U. I, uh, my name is Andrew Rutten. I am excited that you guys are here. I'm excited to continue on in our study of Colossians and work through God's Word. Um, if you have not yet, if you have a Bible on you, would you please flip open to Colossians chapter 2. Uh, I don't think they're going to be on the screen, so if you've got a phone or you have a Bible, go to that right now, Colossians chapter 2. As you get to chapter 2, um, I want to just give you a, a little bit of guidance as we're reading through the book of Colossians. If you've been coming week after week, you know this whole semester we're studying Colossians, and we said that there's really two big emphasis um, that, that Paul wants to make. And he says that he wants us filled with the knowledge of God's will, filled with Christ, so that we may walk in Him. So our purpose behind this book then, and behind reading this, is to be filled with Christ, be filled with truth, so that we may walk differently. So we may look different, we may act different. This is to uh, fill us, to change our lives. Now as we get to chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, this is kind of a, a hinge in the book. This is a shifting point for us as we read it. So just basic, good Bible study shows that as you look at verse 6, if you write in your Bibles, put a square or circle or something around this word, therefore. Anytime you read the word, therefore, what it's doing is it's connecting something that has been said to what he's about to say. And if, as we look at this one in Colossians 2, what we know is that Paul is now connecting everything that he said so far So what we've done over the last four or five weeks is we have looked at who is Christ? Who is this man, Christ? Why is he supreme above all else? And who is he? And Paul is pressing into the Colossians that he must be believed as God. He must be seen as supreme. Therefore, now we're going to get to look at how do we walk in him? This is a hinge in the book saying, okay, now we filled you with this beautiful picture of Christ. And now, church... How does that shape us? How do we now walk in Him for the next couple uh, weeks and the next few chapters? Now it's going to be about Christian living. What does it look like now that you've accepted Christ? How does this function? And so we're going to get a few imperatives or commands that Paul's going to give to the church in Colossae and us to see, okay, now what do we do? And so as we dive into God's Word, um, I see fit to just pray one more time quickly. So let me pray for us. Father... As we begin to look at Paul's um, commands now to the Colossian church and seeing the motivations for how we live differently, would you help us? Would your spirit come and uh, soften our hearts and minds? Would we be uh, in a joyful place of obedience after tonight, after your word presses this into us? And would you give us an exalted view of your son, Jesus? So Spirit of God, be with us and help us. Amen. So... As we look at the book of Colossians, we need to continually remember the the context of the Colossian church, this church at Colossae. You see, uh, the church here in Colossae was right in the the heart of the reign of Rome. So Rome had this huge, massive empire for years and years and years. The Romans really ruled the known world for many, many years in Colossae, and at this time period, is sitting right in the middle of this reign 
of Rome, and Rome was considered the, the everlasting kingdom. They thought that this kingdom of Rome could never be shaken, that Rome was going to be the nation, the empire that ruled for the rest of time. They saw their emperor Caesar uh, as a godlike figure. Many Caesars actually called themselves divine. They saw themselves as the god of the everlasting kingdom. And as Paul is writing Colossians, he's writing to this church, pressing into them against this idea that the Romans are the great authority. That this way of life, this this Caesar kind of lordship over the world, that that wasn't going to last. That that wasn't the true victory, that wasn't the true empire that would last for all time. But at this point... It seemed like that was an option. You know, Rome was continually gaining more and more cities and more and more land. Their authority and their rule continued to grow. And you know, you don't really grow as an empire like this by being very tolerant and being very flippant and being uh, very peaceful, right? The Romans were actually uh, a brutal people at times to, to keep authority. And so one of the things that they would do is if a, a general of their army would go to another city or another place and, and have a war to conquer this city, more often than not, the Romans would actually conquer it. And this general then, he would take all the living people in that city, all of their stuff, all of their army equipment, all of the slaves and the servants that they had, and they would do what they called a Roman triumph. Now what this looked like was essentially a large parade all the way to the capital city. And so they would go and they would put chains on all the captives, all the um, people that they now enslaved, the king himself that was defeated. They would mock them. They would sometimes beat them. They would strip them naked. They would tie them up and they would basically just uh, let them walk all the way to the capital. And so how this procession would look is you'd have all the people, all the materials, all the equipment that they took, then all the servants and the slaves, and then the the defeated army, and then you would see the the king's family. You'd see whoever the the king of that city was, that their family would come, and then would come the king himself, stripped down naked, probably beaten to some degree, just lines of chains. They were taken captive, and they were marched to the capital. Now, after the, the defeated king would come the general, the, one, the victor. They called this the, the triumphator, right? The one who triumphed, that, that this was the general. And they, they would elevate him on this chariot, and they would uh, escort him in, and he would get to uh, proceed and go right after the captive army. And then after him would come all of his army, his family, all the friends. And what they would do is they would be singing praises about this general, that this general was the victor. He was the triumphator. He was the one who would give freedom to the people. He was the ruler. And they would sing his praises and they would march behind him in victory. Now this is what Rome would do to basically show the world you don't mess with Rome. That Rome is the authority. That this general is the victor. He's the one who triumphs. That there is none other like Rome. They're the everlasting kingdom. They are the victors. Now this is the imagery and the picture that Paul is going to speak into in our text tonight. And so what I want us to do is I want us to keep this image in our minds. We have to remember that as the Colossians are reading this, they're seeing it not through our modern day lens, but they're seeing it through their 
Roman-ruled Caesar-as-Lord lens, and they have this idea of this mockery of being held captive and having the Roman triumph parade you around as less than human and to show that you don't mess with Rome. And so Paul is going to speak in here. You know, Rome consistently did this to boast of their power and authority. And what Paul is going to write into, and one of the reasons he got himself killed, is he is going to say Rome is never going to be the ultimate authority. The things of this world, the rulers of this world, the fear of the people of this world will never be ultimate, but there is an even more everlasting kingdom. There's a victor that's even greater. And so um, what I want to do is I want to spoil my punchline tonight, okay? I know that you never tell a story or a joke and say the punchline first, but I'm going to risk it so you guys can hopefully follow along with me. So as we read through this text, what I want us to see is that Paul's plea for the church is for us to live in Christ's triumph. We need to live in Christ's triumph. And we're going to see how that plays out. So if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to start now in verse 8. So Paul writes this to the church. Now see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So right off the bat, he's speaking in a language that they know. They know this idea of being taken captive. They know what it is to be held uh, in bondage or held hostage or to be enslaved. That's what this word means. Now the Colossians see what he's saying here. But what he's saying is, don't let anyone of the world, no human thought, no elemental spirit, which uh, most commentators believe is the, the spiritual uh, realm of Satan and demons, let, let nobody else take you captive. Let no other worldview, no other philosophy, idea of how the world runs, the idea about the truths of God and of man, let no one take you captive but Christ. Do not fall prey to the things of this world. And so, uh, as we look into this, one of the things that the Colossians were being fed, one of the, tr- the quote-unquote truths that false teachers were feeding them, was this idea of Gnosticism, which was this idea that essentially what you had to do in, in uh, religion or in faith is you kind of, you worship a, a bunch, a myriad of gods, that you kind of work your way up from the lesser gods to be getting better and better and better. And eventually, if you're faithful enough, if you're good enough, if you've worshipped all the right things and done all the right things, you'll eventually get to the ultimate God. Some strayed from this and said, more than that, you'll actually become your own God. There's this idea that you just continue to do more and more, continue to, to be better and better, and eventually you will either be a God or you will finally worship the real God. Now there was also Jewish people in the mix, and they have the one true God, Yahweh, right? But they started to believe, okay, well, maybe Christ is just one of these lesser gods. Right? Maybe he's one of the, the messengers, the God-like figures. So, so yeah, Jesus is really good, and we're going to you know, keep working up past him, and maybe worship some other gods, and eventually get to the ultimate God of Yahweh. Now the Christians here in Colossae, who were being taken captive to this. They were falling into this belief that, that really 
We just need to continually worship more and more gods. We need to continually be better and better, be more faithful and more faithful, and eventually we'll get to the real God. You know, so many false religions, so many false teachings do not promote a debaucherous kind of lifestyle. They don't promote this crazy wild living. What they do is they take the truth and they skew it just a little bit. Yeah, maybe there is a one true God, but just worship a bunch of other ones until you get to him. You know, there is a set of morals in Christianity, and, and it's really about being good enough to actually get there. That's what morals are for. There's these tiny little shifts that eventually lead you far astray. So city like you, one thing that I want to ask us tonight, that's what the Colossians were believing in then. What would you say you're believing in now? What kind of worldview is our culture telling you? Are you reading about? What kind of things are you believing about yourself and about God? What are some of these philosophies that have taken your heart and your mind captive? I think for us in America, uh, a couple of them, I would say one is simply the idea of the American dream. Right? Like this is a, a belief that really we're essentially blind to. We don't even know how engrossed we are in this idea of the American dream. That, that it doesn't matter where you started. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter where you were born, what social class you're in. You can live for prosperity. You can live for more. You can make it to wherever you want to go. You can live it up. And the American dream is essentially about more materials, more comfort, and more status for ourselves. I don't know many Christians, we can say, well, no, I'm not stuck in that. But I'd argue, I mean, most of the reason if you guys are in college is partially to live out the American dream. I mean, we're in college to advance ourselves, to go further than we could without it. The reason that we store up money and we are already, some of you are investing and saving for retirement is because you want that comfortability at the end. You want that security that this can provide. You want to say that you made it. I mean, some of you, if you're not from America, but you've come here, you've probably come here for partially the American dream, to make it, to strive for something greater, to go beyond where your parents did, to live for this world. It's a lie that America has been feeding us. My prayer for us is that we wouldn't get sucked into this idea that This is America, the land of the free, and we can do whatever we want to do to advance ourselves. It's a very, very selfish dream. What about this kind of YOLO lifestyle? The culture of YOLO, right? You only live once, so live it up, right? Don't save for retirement. Don't be wise really about anything. You don't really have to care about anybody else because you got one life, so live it up. Right? I mean, we, we buy into this. Even us in the room, the, the way that we act oftentimes is because we think, hey, I got one life. I'm just going to live it up. I'm going to seek as many pleasures as I can. I'm going to do whatever I can to just experience as much as I can in this world. All I want to do is travel and make money and spend money and meet people and have sex and try things. And I just want to live up this world. It is a pitiful lie that our culture is preaching into our hearts. Uh, another one I'll end with this is uh, getting more into the faith realm. Our world has told us specifically about Christianity that if you want to be a Christian, you really have to be tolerant of all peoples. 
I mean, God is loving. God is tolerant of everybody. He loves all people. As long as somebody is trying to be good or has a faith, they're fine. Now, I'd argue that not one bit of that is from the Bible, but that's what the world wants to tell us. Hey, if you're just loving, which isn't really love, but is really just just don't hate me, just don't uh, just accept me, just be tolerant of whatever I do, then you can be a Christian, then you can be a good person. You see, we're so ingrained in a lot of these things that, that it is even so hard for us to realize how much of a hold these have on us. What would you say it is for you? Well, what's a lie? What, what's something that the world is preaching into your heart that if I asked, where did you get that from, you wouldn't be able to say from this book? You wouldn't be able to say, from Christ. You could say, well, this is, what, this is just what I feel. This is what I think. This is what my professor told me. This is just what I know. It's these teachings of the world that are holding our hearts and our minds captive. And let me say this, Christians in the room, if you listen to this and you think, well, oh, not me, you think, well, I, I'm too holy to fall into the American dream. I don't believe in the YOLO lifestyle. I, I'm too good. I'm too smart. I'm too holy for that. I would press that I think most of all you might be susceptible to this type of philosophy. If you are already not deep in it now. Christians, we cannot think that we are good enough, smart enough, or strong enough to not be taken captive by the things of this world. We are ingrained in the things of this world. I was reading this text on Friday and studying through this, and I literally was brought to my knees in prayer because I know my heart wants the American dream. I want the American dream. I want the money. I want the comfortability. I want the big house. I want the great family. Everything in me wants that. I am not immune to the teachings of of this world. You are not immune to the teachings of the world. And a lot of what Paul is talking about here is not throwing away your faith as a whole, but it's just deviating from the truth enough to stray off. My prayer is for us as a community that we would be guarded against the teachings of the world. That we would be so steadfast in the truth of Scripture and in the firm foundation of Christ that we as a people could hold fast to that and not stray. I know that it's happened before. I know that we're susceptible. My prayer for us is that we would be humble enough to realize that and try to fight against it. Now, if we are not strong enough to do that, If I'm telling you that you're so ingrained in culture, you can't fully even read culture because it's just the air you breathe, it's the things that you know, it's what's being filled in your mind, then how do we fight it? How do we not be taken captive by these things? If we all naturally want to believe them, what do we do to fight? Well, 2 Corinthians 3 says that how you are matured in Christ how you are sanctified, how you are grown in Christ, how you become like Christ, is simply by beholding Christ. The way that you do not stray from truth is not by fighting the lies itself, but by staring at the truth even more. You see, for us, if we want to fight these teachings and be a people that hold fast to Christ, 
we need to view Christ more rightly. We need to accurately get a picture and behold Christ. And 2 Corinthians says, you will become what you behold. Whatever you stare at, whatever you intake, you will become. And so what I want to do for the remainder of tonight is walk through the rest of this text. And I want to look at five truths of Christ. I say, if we're going to fight against the American dream, the YOLO dream, the, the religious tolerance kind of ideas, or whatever else it is that we believe in, the way we fight that is by accurately viewing Christ. So what I want to do is I want to look at the five truths of Christ and how they will guard us against the worldly teachings. All right, so look with me. Verse 9. For in him, that is Christ, the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Number one, the truth of Christ is that Christ is God. Christ is God. Now why I say this and why I think Paul presses in on this is because a common belief then and a common belief of our time is that Christ is one of the gods or Christ is a good person or he's one of the ways. But the truth is that this says there is one God and Christ is the fullness of that deity. The fullness of God is in Christ. He's not part of God. He's not lesser than God. He is God. He's not some moral teacher. He's not a messenger. He is God. Paul wants to press in to tell us that he is the fullness of God so we don't think that we ever move past Christ. He is what we fix our eyes on. We cannot move on if we don't believe that Christ is God, that Jesus is actually God. If we don't believe that, Everything else is worthless in this book. Everything else that Paul's going to point to doesn't matter. But if he is, he changes everything. He says that not only is Christ God, but he now dwells in you. This is a beautiful truth that God is not far off, but God came and now God indwells us. So City Light, you, first question, do you believe Christ is God? Do you actually believe Christ is God? I've said this a hundred times this semester. But I'm not just talking to the non-Christians there. Christians, does your life reflect that you actually believe that Jesus is God? His words, what He did, what He wants from you, do you follow that because you believe He is actually God? Has He changed us? For those of you who would say no... I want to press in and say that this book, this Bible, and Colossians specifically, is devoted and dedicated to us believing in and trusting in Christ as God. Not one of the gods, but the supreme being of all. Would you, do you, submit to and trust Christ as God? Secondly, he moves on a little bit further In verses 11 and 12. In him, Christ again, also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Number two, Christ is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. What they were believing in this time and why he addresses this 
is there's this weird mix of the, the Jewish Christians who are circumcised, which in the Old Testament is the sign that you are of the people of God, and now the newer Christians are wondering, do we have to get circumcised? In other words, is there anything else for us to do? Do we have to do anything else to get to God? Is there anything else to mark us? Is there any other actions or works that we have to do? And if we look at our day, I know we think Jesus is great, but don't we also always think that there's more for us to do? That Christ's work on the cross was the beginning point, and now we continue on the work of our own salvation. Christians, we may not say that, but we oftentimes believe it. It's why we, uh, it's why we judge others to make ourselves seem better. Well, well I'm, uh, I'm better than this person. I'm working my way towards the cross. I'm doing the right things. I'm being better. We believe that Christ began the work, and as long as I can justify in my mind that I'm getting better, doing better, and doing more, I am finishing the work. Do we have to be in church? Do we have to read our Bibles? Do we have to do this? Do we have to do that? It's a constant question, and it's a constant guilt that stems from our belief that Christ is not sufficient. What Paul says here, he says that you were circumcised not by what is done with hands, but by the circumcision of Christ. This idea of circumcision is the, the removal of flesh, right? Not going to go any further. The removal of flesh, we know that. Okay. Now when he's talking about the circumcision of Christ, he's not talking about Christ's actual bodily circumcision. What he's saying here is that the circumcision of Christ's body, his actual flesh being removed in his death on the cross, has now removed your sinful body. As they're alluding to in uh, the body of the flesh, what he's saying here is that we all were created with a sinful nature. The Bible often calls that flesh, our fleshly desires, our sinful flesh. What Paul's pointing to is that you don't work to get rid of your sin On the cross, Christ removed and shed his body so that he could fully remove your sin from you. When he cried, it is finished, it meant that that work is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. Do you believe that he's actually enough? Do you believe that you have to work more to earn that cross, or to get your way to the cross, or to finish the work started on the cross, Or do you believe that the cross of Christ is sufficient for you? Let's move on. Verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Number three, Christ is forgiver. Christ is our Forgiver. And again, this is a huge one in our culture. We often like to believe that we are not that bad. I'm fine. We do the comparison game again. I'm better than this person. I'm, I'm better than that person. I've really not done that many things. But what the Bible says here and what the Bible specifically repeats is that you are not just a bad, sick person. You were dead. And not only dead just in your sinful nature, but he says you're dead in your trespasses which is not just sin, which is the missing of the mark, right? Sin is not lining up with God's will. Trespasses is actually knowingly walking in that. So we don't just sin, but we know that we're doing wrong at the core of our 
hearts, that we are walking in our trespasses, and because of that, we are dead in our sin. We are dead in our trespasses. You are not a bad person who needs to get a little bit better. It's a lie that is consistently pressed in that Christians are just supposed to be good people. The reality is that you were dead and you need a new life. In this verse, Paul reminds them that God made you alive by the uh, made you alive, forgiving you of your trespasses. You have sins that have caused death. You need a new death to cause new life. You needed the uncircumcision, the removal of your sin, and you needed now to be brought back to life. And the only way to do that was through the death of Christ. Don't fall into the trap that we are bad people who just want to get a little bit better. We are dead souls who need new life, and through the death of Christ, he offers new life. Number four, let's look at 14. So he has forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is a huge one. Number four, Christ is our justifier. He is our justifier. Another belief that our culture likes to to teach is that God is just this loving God, that it's not really about sin and blood and death and all this stuff, but But he just loves. He can just forgive. You know, we don't need the cross. We don't need to preach the cross. We need to preach God's love. You don't don't have this debt that has to be paid. You You just need to believe. You just have to have faith and you just have to work your way up the mountain. What Paul talks about here is that each and every one of us have a record of debt. You know, in the Roman culture, if you were indebted to somebody, you would get what's called a record of debt or a written uh, code. And what that would be is this, this page, and it would be written on it, your debt. And that now defined you. You couldn't really function very much in your society if you had an overwhelming debt that had to be paid. That had to be gotten rid of if you wanted to continually live and survive outside of being a slave or a servant. You had this, what's called, a record of debt. Now, if you could actually pay off your debt, and you could get rid of it, what they would do is, the, the, the paper called papyrus, this, it, wasn't, uh, uh, it was expensive, it, they didn't just rip it up, throw it away, or do anything. What they did was, they had this special oil that they would take a sponge or something, and they would actually wipe away the writing on it that had your debt on it. This is called to, to wipe away, to blot out the debt for that person. And then you have this page, and you are now debt free, you are innocent, your, your slate is clean. But you needed your debt to be wiped out. It's the same word that Paul talks about here when he said, your record of debt has been canceled. It has been wiped out. It has been made clean. You are no longer guilty before a holy God. You now can be set free. Well, how did he do it? At the end of the verse it says, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. As people would hang on the cross, they would nail their offense on top of it. And they would show this is why he 
died. What Paul is getting at is the beautiful truth that Christ died to pay the debt that you can never pay. He said he took your record of debt, he nailed it to the cross, and he died so that you could now be seen clean. You don't just need this forgiveness and this loving God. You actually have a debt that you have to pay. Your sins have put a mark on your soul, have given you a debt that you must pay, and the only way that you can pay off a perfect God is through death. And either you can pay in your death or you can live through the death of Christ. What Paul's saying here is, Colossians, don't forget Christ is your justifier. Don't let them believe that Christ is just part of this. He canceled your record of debt. Fifth, lastly, verse 15, his climax. What he gets to, he says, don't be taken captive by these things, but here's his last powerful point of Christ. He says, Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Immediately when the Colossians see this word triumphing, they know of this parade. They know of the victor. They know of the great triumphator. Fifth, Christ is our triumphator. Christ is the great victor. You see, the the belief that we want to believe is that our addictions, our sins, our loneliness, Satan himself is too powerful for us. We believe that these things have too much power over us, and I think we often transfer that to say, I know Christ died for me, but he doesn't seem to have power in my life today. What Paul wants us to remember is that Christ didn't just die on that cross, but he rose again to defeat all the things of this world. He is the great triumphator. He says that he is putting his enemies to open shame. It's this image of Christ taking all the things of this world, the the worldviews, the rulers and authorities, the Roman empires, the American empires, the monies, the things of this world, Satan himself, and he is taking them captive. And in his raising from the dead, he has paraded them and showed their shame. The beautiful thing is I, I don't know that we always think about Jesus in this way. Like, think about this. We think, okay, he's victorious, but he's also kind of passive and and loving. This text says he puts everything that is your enemy to shame. Everything that is not of him, he puts to shame. This is not the sweet, passive, fairy tale kind of Jesus. This is the Jesus that is passionate about the Father's glory and the salvation of his people. For you, for his people, he triumphs and he puts to shame the things of this world. And one day he is coming back as the great victor. One day he's coming back not to just uh, wipe away things, to, to just love and be tolerant, but he is putting everything that stands in your way of him to open shame. He is triumphing. He is the victor. So city like you... If you have been made alive in Christ, if you have been forgiven in Christ, if you have had your sins wiped away in Christ, if you have been justified in Christ, if you have a king in Christ, why submit to the things of this world? 
What Paul wants us to see is Christ and the beauty. If he is God, if he is sustainer, if he is sufficient, if he is forgiver, if he is triumphant, then why submit to the things of this world? You have a king who is living and reigning, and we are in the period now where we get to be as the general's army singing the praises of our victor, singing of the triumphator, singing of the praises of our king that one day will come back to rule and to reign. City like you, my prayer and my hope for us as a people is that we would consistently fix our eyes on Christ. View Him as the triumphant King. See what He has done for us. And as we view the beauty of Christ through the beauty of God's Word, we can begin to guard against, fend off, and not believe the things of this world. May we not be a people who think that we can fight this alone, but would we rely on the Word and the power of Christ... If you're not a believer in the room, as almost every week, I want to press in and just ask why. Why not believe in Christ? What is it that holds you back from faith in the God who came to forgive you of your sins, to appease the wrath that you have to pay, and to rule and reign in your life? Christ is God. Christ is sufficient for you. Christ is the forgiver of your sins. Christ is the justifier of your debt. And Christ is king. And he is coming back one day to rule and to reign. So we sing. So we pray. So we praise. So we tell the world of our triumphator. We tell the world of our great king. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for... Your word, I thank you that um, that you have come not to not to just leave us where we're at, not to just give us an example, not to just tell us what to do, but you have come and you have paid our debt. You have come so that we may now live in you, Father. I pray as a community that you would help us in this. Would we fix our eyes? On Christ, would we believe that you pursue us? That would we believe that you desire to save us? Would we believe, Jesus, that you are passionate about the salvation of your people? Father, we thank you that we had a debt that we couldn't pay, and that Jesus, you came to pay it. Spirit of God, <laughs> enlighten our hearts, fill us with the true vision of. Jesus, and would we be a people focused on Him, fixated on Him? Would we become more and more like Him by beholding Him as He truly is?